0: Good afternoon. It is 3 p.m. in Singapore, and I would like to welcome you all to the Asian Banker Live Radio Finance, our online broadcast platform that aims to enhance the understanding of industry by bringing together senior senior opinion leaders to examine current critical issues. I am Mabashur Zain Kazmi, Head of Research at the Asian Banker. In May 2018, the two largest economies of the world the United States and China started a trade war that placed tariffs on over $550 billion worth of Chinese products and 185 billion worth of U.S. goods. After nearly two years of talks, threats and escalating tariffs imposed on bilateral trade, on the 15th of January, 2020, the United States and China signed an economic and trade agreement. At first glance, the trade agreement seemed remarkably in favor of the US as the document contains a total of 105 times commitment by China compared to 88 joint commitments and only five commitments of the US. Is the agreement lopsided or is there more than meets the eye? In this session, we have Professor Bert Hoffman as our guest speaker, who is director of the East Asian Institute at the National University of Singapore. He has closely dissected, studied and analyzed the economic trade agreement and with his thought leadership, we look to truly uncover what this agreement really means for the two economic giants. I would now like to invite professor Hoffman to share his presentation with us.
1: Thank you, and you're, you're too kind. Um, So, I'll, I'll, talk about the trade agreement, but I do wanna bring it a little bit into context uh, also for your viewers to understand where we're really coming from. And, and one, one, one thing that I'd like to start with a little bit of context, um, and the context goes back to when I was 12 years old, in 1974 when the, actually the United States was, uh, that was the last year that the United States had a surplus in the trade of goods and services. So brilliantly the United States has for more than 40 years, has run a deficit financed by uh, capital inflows because the United States is so attractive to place your capital in. So China and the deficits with China, the bilateral deficits with China are only one in a series of bilateral deficits. And in the very old days, it was actually Germany that ran a a large surplus, they're a little bit back. Uh, then uh, during the 70s and the 80s, it was very much Japan uh, that ran the surpluses, the bilateral surpluses with the United States. Then uh, as Japan reduced the rest of Asia, uh, largely the, 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 the NICs came up and Korea came up. But since China's entry in WTO 2000, it's really been China. And the reason, of course, is that the United States runs a structural deficit largely determined by I said, investor sentiment, i.e. a lot of people want to invest in the United States, but also macroeconomic stance, i.e. the United States has run large fiscal deficits uh, which need to be financed as well. And 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 Asian countries have taken turn in filling up that deficit and now is, if you want, the, the China's turn. But there's more to it, to, to China and the U.S. relationship. Uh, really, China is now at the center of global value chains and um, the Slide that you see is an illustration of that, 2016, China is really the center of the world. Whereas 20 years ago, China was a bit of a backwater supplier to a supplier to Japan. Uh, So a completely different role today than than in the past. And it also makes the trade war between the United States and China, uh, if you want so risky, because disentangling the the intricate web on the right side will be very costly. Uh, China has increasingly reduced its reliance on imported value-added, but that's if you want in line with what has been happening, but it has been increasing value-added to the exports of other countries. And what it really means is that they have been exporting lots of intermediaries Uh, Today we're fighting with the coronavirus and you'll see that effect uh, uh, in the short term, but in the medium term China has been increasing its uh, its supply to other countries and therefore other countries rely much more on the export of China, including the United States, but especially here in the region And Vietnam and Singapore are standing out here in the region. Uh, In tech, the dependence on China uh, from a value-added point of view is even larger. I mean, if you you look at how much China supplies, it's been rising, and trading partners with China have been supplying less and less value-added to China. In part, that's because now far more Far more companies that used to be abroad they are now actually on in mainland China and supplying to the Foxcons of the world there. And to illustrate, uh, in in the, the first the first version of the iPhone that was made in China, China's domestic value added was only three percent. The last version of the iPad, uh, the iPod, sorry, uh, the the iPhone, the iPhone uh, now has twenty five percent of China domestic value added. So China is is enlarging its supply chain. Final point on on the context, and that is really uh, and it's trivial, but how large China is. I mean, if you start disrupting global value chains, if you if you create trade tensions, you have to understand that in the short term, there is very little alternative. People talk a lot about Vietnam was benefiting from the tensions. People talk a lot about Mexico benefiting from the tensions. Fair enough. But China has 28% of world manufacturing. Vietnam has 0.6% of world manufacturing. So it's very hard to see any kinds of substitute in Vietnam. Mexico, 1.5%, still a very, very small player compared to China, uh, and as in fact, compared to the United States itself. So there is really no alternative in the short run to all this supply from China in a multilateral sense, in a global value change sense, but also in a bilateral sense. Now let's come to the agreement and the agreement indeed came, came after almost two years of haggling with accelerating tariffs with an almost agreement in April next year that then, that then was, was in the end fell apart because of political opposition in China to, to the terms and the way the United States thought of enforcing it. But we now have something of a, of a, of a truce, uh, a phase one agreement. There's a little bit of tariff reduction, but very little, and I'll explain a little later how much it actually is. There is some some, some issues in intellectual property rights are being addressed. It's always been a bone of contention between China and the U.S. Frankly, China had moved already, and this was relatively easy to agree on. Technology transfer, frankly, since the entry of China in the WTO in 2001, uh, the, the policy was that there was no forced technology transfer, but the practice worked out a little differently. Now there is a commitment as part of the uh, agreement. Uh, agriculture, uh, a very interesting area uh, where China promised not just to buy more, but also uh, from the United States, but also to actually recognize their product safety uh, 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 rules. And that is quite exceptional to have a one-sided Uh, recognition of those rules. Financial services, again, China had already said it would open up for fully 100% 100 owned foreign entities. Uh, Now uh, they have reconfirmed that if you have a chapter on currency, it by and large uh, says, well, you you need to not manipulate your currency. That's already a commitment made in G20. This confirms this. And then then there is what is very important for, for President Trump, I would say, is the expanding trade chapter. And in part that's agriculture, in part that is manufacturing, in total it should be 200 billion to, in two years. Um, we said, you, you, you said in the beginning, uh, uh, Mobashe, that, that this was an uneven treaty and it is in a way. Uh, but at the same time, China commits to a number of things that it has already moved on. And so this just counting the commitments is in a way a little bit of a distortion. Uh, but nevertheless, it is quite striking how uneven the China shells and the United States shells are. It's indeed the majority of commitments come from China or the joint commitments, and the United States commits to very little, frankly. Um, the additional 200 billion, and this is a slide that uh, that I borrow from the Deutsche Bank, I should say. Um, uh, the, somehow the recognition is not there, but it's from the Deutsche Bank, who looked at the ad- additional import uh, commitments that China made. Well it's a lot of agriculture it's a, a quite a bit of energy but it's also manufacturing and it's also services. Service is a little tricky because one really shouldn't count it as an import uh, the way it is defined in the in the uh, phase one agreement but nevertheless it is counted. The tricky part here is that the base taken is only about uh, hundred and thirty billion itself so it is it is less than the actual trade between China and the United States, which makes it much harder for the for China to meet to meet the 200 billion increase. Uh, big beneficiaries are, are the farmers, probably big losers will be farmers in other countries such as Brazil, such as Canada, such as Australia. Energy, big win for uh, United States energy suppliers, notably the, the, the fracking, the fracking based oil and gas. Big losers will probably be uh, uh, the Middle East and Australia, who are both very big suppliers to, to China in that sphere. So, so there's a lot of, of trade displacement. Uh, w- strikingly, though, and this is something where I would have expected China to, to win, Strikingly is that despite all the commitments from the Chinese side, the tariffs barely go down. And this is a chart uh, made by Chad Brown from Patterson Institute of International Economics. Fantastic, fantastic observer of the trade, of the trade uh, issues. Uh, and, and, and he shows basically that, that this t- tiny little decrease in, in, uh, in tariffs at the very end is basically negligible. So basically the tariffs stay in place. China, meanwhile, has announced that it will reduce the tariffs, the retaliatory tariffs that it had imposed on exports from the United States. But they had to because they need to buy more, and so so for them, it's simply reducing the cost of importing from the United States. It would have been silly to import more of those goods that they already tariff. But within the agreement, there is no commitment. There is no review of the tariffs. There is not. Let's say, let's look at it again in six months, and then with the with the view of reducing it if things go well, none of that. So that all is taken out of the agreement and is basically at the discretion of the of the parties and largely at the discretion of the United States. Quite surprising and 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 a little uneven, if you want. But given that these tariffs stay in place, there's more going on. Uh, um, what will also continue to happen is this trade diversion caused by the tariffs. And and this is this these are some numbers that show that that trade diversion that happened uh, uh, until in this case until October there is newer numbers but they look the same Uh, where China uh, 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 this is the changes in the US trade deficit broken up by country and you see that China indeed is now exporting on net a lot less to to the US so they have contributed far less to the trade deficit but others are contributing more Canada Europe Mexico Everybody wins, China loses. A a classic case of trade diversion, an economist would say. Secondly, though, which is also important, China is, and this is the China growth, uh, year-on-year exports, year-to-date, year-on-year. And you see that China's export to the United States is down and it ended up at 15% over the year. But in many other countries, and including especially ASEAN, uh, uh, exports are strongly up. Why is that well? Because China needs to put its stuff somewhere, and they found a market in ASEAN. so so the u s China trade relationship also caused a lot of trade diversion and a lot of negative effects, if you want, for other countries. Let me stop here and let's uh, let's uh, take it into the discussion.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Professor Hoffman. Uh, to begin with, I would like to understand. What compulsions drove both China and the U.S. to sign the phase one agreement? And, and, and as a follow-up, is this really a win-win for both countries?
1: Um, well, uh, if, if you look at it from an economic point of view, there's, there's very, very few wins to, to, to be detected, frankly. Those commitments that would be used yes. for China were already made. And if you want, it was put in the agreement that it that it looked uh, it, it may that agreement may make those commitments a bit more credible
0: but right. overall
1: the the tariffs stay high a lot of the very difficult issues are not addressed uh, such as state enterprises industrial policies subsidies difficult issues that were part of this draft agreement back in april they are now out as at this this voluntary import commitment um, very disruptive for, for world trade. But from a political point of view, of course, it looks, it looks quite different. Um, um, yeah. A, Trump wanted to have a win and he wanted to, and, and I think he was well positioned. And so he can now say two things. A, I've been very tough on China and, 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 and you see it's working because they're buying yeah. more from us. And, and I haven't reduced the tariffs. So I've been tough on China and I continue to be tough on China until they really equal out the deficit with China. So that's a, that's a very good political position for him to be in and to carry into the elections, no question. And of course, some of his, right. some of his uh, electorates, uh, notably the farmers would be, would be relatively happy with it. Others in manufacturing will not be happy with this because yes. the, on net the tariffs imposed have actually been quite negative for manufacturing in the United States. So on net have, have caused jobs uh, losses rather than job gains. And so that's not so good. For China, China, um, I, I think China signed in part because, um, in part because, you know, they, they look at the commitments yeah. but in a way they already wanted to do that. So it's not, it, it looks like a big commitment, but it's, it's all right. Second, um, I think they overestimated their own capabilities a little bit. And uh, the big shock to, china in the in the trade war was actually the the um, listing of Huawei on the entities list. And there it suddenly became clear that China actually missed a lot of or even you know, the United States had very big it was carrying very big sticks in this Absolutely. in this conflict. And so I think they they were they were sort of keen to come to some agreement, buy some peace, buy some quiet time. Because also the uncertainty around this whole negotiation was actually undermining investments, was undermining uh, uh, economic growth in China. So they wanted to buy some peace and maybe some time to build up their own capacity domestically. So for them, in the end, it is it is it is probably an, an acceptable an acceptable agreement. Uh, yes. Uh, in in part political, but in part also economic. Economic.
0: Okay. Very good. And um, we spoke about the, the the tariffs as well, but uh, the Phase One agreement does not have a commitment or a guarantee to reduce those tariffs, isn't it?
1: Correct. There is there is there is nothing about tariffs basically in the in, in the in the agreement except yes. except the final chapter, which which talks about which talks about um, um, what would happen if commitments are not made, and then and then the answer is more tariffs. Uh, but um, um there is not a commitment to reducing the tariffs to even reviewing the tariffs over time, so that would have to be handled somewhere else. Hopefully, it will be handled somewhere else but uh, but yes. maybe 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 at least from the United States side, they might feel quite comfortable with uh, with uh, with with the tariffs. so it would have to be the China that would argue this uh, that it right. might take some time right,
0: okay. Very good. And um, in terms of the unilateral recognition of standards, we do see that it's, um, uh, you know, pretty or fairly unusual in trade agreements. Mm. But in this instance, China has accepted, you know, the imposition of U.S. food safety regulations on its agricultural exports. Uh, What what drove China uh, to accept this or how, 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 yeah,
1: there's a couple of ways to look at that. The one, the one is that they were forced, i.e., uh, the United States would argue that look, you know, we've had always this access, but it never happened because you always found some safety requirement that we didn't meet and then and then we couldn't export. And that happens not just in China, that happens around the world that happens in Europe, there's different standards, and it's always very hard to do agriculture exports. And so the United States may have argued very strongly to get, to get rid of it. But yeah. the, 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 second, the second point is that the reality is, of course, that the United States uh, has much higher standards, in part because of their very litigious society. So if there's something wrong with food safety, <laughs> it, costs you, it costs you a lot of money. China yeah. is still relatively weak, and maybe China just said, "Well, look, this, this might be something this that that we import their standards, and then our own suppliers would have to would have to meet those standards in order to be able to compete, and that's yep. good for China." So, so I think they're also solving a bit of a domestic problem, knowing China quite well, having discussed a lot with with China's Food and Drug Administration on these issues. Yes, they had a, they had a bit of a difficulty in in upping their own domestic standards. So in a way this, this this is maybe reformers using that external pressure to get domestically some things done.
0: Okay, that's quite interesting um, that it's emerged that way. It's, it's, it's uh, very interesting to see what happens. Uh, I also had a question concerning the dispute resolution. Uh, given that retaliatory tariffs are not allowed and the only recourse is reverting to the standoff that exists uh, you know that existed prior to the phase one agreement. Is there a possibility of a cancellation of the phase one agreement if there is no dispute resolution?
1: I, I think it's it's right now very unattractive. More so now that the coronavirus is is, oh, yes. is playing havoc with the Chinese economy. But I think the Chinese will be will be quite will be quite patient, and and I think they're seriously committed to 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 meeting the commitments. Uh, um, and so, so, and if there is a bit of a derailing, and if then the, if there were to be a retaliation, I don't think they would walk away. So, so okay. I think, um, um, I said for now they want they want they want some some quiet time on the trade front, and they can regroup and rethink their strategies. So, so, but also, uh, I said I think the commitments are there to, to make this to, to make this agreement work. Okay, and, and so maybe, maybe the dispute resolution will never, be, will never be used. Okay, yes, absolutely. And looking at the specific
0: steps uh, that the U.S. can take to revamp its manufacturing base, because you did alluded, allude to that in your, in your slide presentation. Um, you know, this was one of the key objectives, uh, at least for, for the U.S. and for the Trump administration, that they were looking to revamp their manufacturing base. Uh, and you know, create the employment and bring jobs back home. So mm-hmm. it has. It, will this happen, or is this likely to happen, or is this happening now?
1: Um, well, the, the 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 evidence thus far, and that's not my evidence, but uh, uh, there's evidence from researchers at the uh, Federal Reserve Board, shows that actually the the tariffs have overall been damaging to employment in manufacturing, as I said. Right. Um, and that's simple. It's not just the tariffs with China, but it's the overall tariff program of of the trump the trump uh, government, in part right. because because they put tariffs on steel, which made steel products in the United States less competitive, and the downstream sectors that use steel, they have more employment than the upstream sectors. I mean, upstream steel is just very, very big machines <laughs> pouring right. pouring molten iron. Uh, uh, and and downstream is is where the jobs are. So if you make upstream more expensive, you become less competitive downstream, and that's basically what happened. So so the, the tariffs is not a way to go, and and, and manage trade is really not a way to go to revamp to make a major rejuvenation of manufacturing. There may be good reasons to think about rejuvenation of manufacturing. Right. And let me say it. One of them is is national security. There's no question that that is the case, but in others it is also if you have a certain labor force that that really can only do manufacturing is only trained to do manufacturing now getting some manufacturing back is important to to create some employment for people that uh, that you feel uh, have gotten the short stick of of, of globalization but then what so so what do you do well that that is you know are very very different fields frankly it's 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 important investing more in research and development if you want to do more manufacturing you need the infrastructure to match because big big manufacturing requires requires big big logistics and big infrastructure so so you'd have to build more of that you probably uh, uh, modern manufacturing is quite sophisticated a lot of it's quite automated so if you want to create more jobs you need to have more sophisticated workers which means retraining the ones that are looking for a job but also Thinking about the next generation of workers on how they should look and, and in, invest invest in those people by means of a better education system. So there, there is a there is a uh, if you want I, I could sketch a plan, and yeah. with more time I could I could make a plan to to revamp manufacturing in in, in the United States. Tariffs is not it. Is not the solution.
0: Very good, very good. And uh, Professor Hoffman, how has the agreement created? A better environment for technology and intellectual property uh, dependent industries in china.
1: yeah, so I think I think I mean china uh, it, it's sort of interesting because on the one hand, everybody fears China and China's technological development and how fast they go. on the other hand they say, oh, but it's intellectual property is terrible there and 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 um, um, it's very hard to to, to invest yes but now the the um, the fact of the matter is that China, since since sort of the earlier the last decade, sort of around the 2010, they realised that they need to improve. By by mid-century, there's been quite a bit of a decade there have been quite a bit of reforms in better protecting intellectual property rights. Yes. Special 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 courts for enforcement of intellectual property rights. There's currently a revision of the law ongoing. So. Uh, with regard to the uh, with regard to the technology transfer, there's been a, a number of policy pronouncements of of senior leaders, but also the the foreign investment law already in, included explicit clauses on this. So if you want, China had already moved quite a bit, um, yeah. but then then this 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 agreement is maybe the icing on the cake i e because there is an external force, the United States. Uh, basically pushing China to, to, to meet this obligation, the likelihood of them meeting this obligation a little better. So it actually means that China has, has improved its environment. And, yeah. and, and that's the irony I think in this, in the, in all of this, if you, if you look at, if you look at the bottom line, you yeah. see, China makes itself ready for the future, more intellectual property, more sophisticated industry technology and the United States exports, agriculture and energy. Yeah. So, so it it that, that I think is something that for for United States United States policymakers to reflect on because I think I think it it's it's in the end for their long term interest this may not be this may not be the way to go. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: And uh, my final question uh, for you, Professor Hoffman, is where do you think we'll go from here? And uh, Will there be a consensus reached by both parties on issues of industrial policy, state-owned enterprises
1: and subsidies in in a potential phase two agreement? Um, Well, first, I think that we're all going to take a break. At least China, US is going to take a break. And and I don't think much will happen till till the elections. Then, um, as far as I understand, uh, President Trump, he wants to negotiate first with the EU. Right. And then with the UK. So it may be that it will take a while before sort of people start looking again at phase two. Um yeah. there's a big there's a big question on on on, um, on whether these difficult areas, these are difficult areas, industrial policy, state owned enterprises, subsidies, all of them. The only very weakly addressed or or uh, or regulated in the WTO agreement. So there's a, a huge grey area, and China yep. basically says, "Look, we have the right within that grey area to have a bit of a darker side of the d- d- darker shade of grey, compared to some of the some of the uh, Western Western countries." Um, and and in a way, they, they they they're not they're not wrong there. However, those Western countries they think very differently, and they see these areas is the big bone of contention, actually the much more important one than the intellectual property, right? And, and they have been working uh, on this sort of without China to, to formulate a number of positions. And so it's, it's actually the US, Japan, and the EU that came out with a joint statement in these areas that sound pretty tough on China, i.e. what China is doing now they can no longer do. Uh, the question is whether that is acceptable to China or and the question is in the end whether they need to give in uh, the objective question of course is how how important is industrial policy for a country how important are subsidies what in, what role can subsidies play in there can some of that be WTO compatible or not whether such subtle discussions will be raised during during the process remains to be seen, but it would okay. actually be it would be really important. There are there are in my view there are rules, yes there are rules that can be thinkable that can be put in the WTO where everybody would agree and have, and it would be reasonable to the benefit of the, of, of the whole world. Whether that happens uh, remains to be seen. And it's at the, by, a bilateral negotiation is really yes. not the right is really not the right platform for that that should be a double WTO, WTO negotiation should be a WTO discussion and and hopefully that uh, that, that that will happen in the in the coming in the coming months or year before before phase 2 negotiations start so that there is a, a broader consensus yes. on what what is allowed and what is not
0: yes absolutely i think uh, you're absolutely on the, on the right track uh, in that sense that there needs to be um, you know, a broader consensus reached. Uh, hopefully we do see these uh, uh, these this materialize. I would like to thank our guest speaker, uh, Professor Hoffman, uh, for sharing with us your deep insights uh, with us today. We hope our audience has found this session interesting and useful. If you've missed any part of this session, a recording of this will be available on the Asian Banker website. So do visit the website, should you like to listen to a playback of the session Until the next event, we wish you all a good day, and uh, thank you to Professor Hoffman again for his insights uh, for this unique radio finance session. Thank you.